Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We also have six values, not only our mission to extend the welcome of Jesus, but six values that guide us as a church. And these are, just to remind us all, the formation of emotionally healthy spirituality, the initiation of redemptive hospitality, the intersection of faith and work, the connection of church and campus, the vision of a cross-cultural community, and the mission of every single member. These values guide us and they energize us as a church. And one of the ways that we unpack these values is through our home groups. We designate an entire season to study and explore each of our values. And so this season we are exploring our value of redemptive hospitality. And the way that we're doing that as home groups is by exploring and using material from a book called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. That's the season of our home group. As you all know, we are also in a season as a church, even a global church, of Advent. Of Advent. And so we almost, as a church, press pause on the art of neighboring in order to focus on Advent, but instead of pressing pause, we decided to combine them. I hope we love them both and, so let's just do that with this as well. How can indeed Advent shape and inform the way that we do the art of neighboring? In other words, what does Advent have to do with neighbor love? See, we believe that Advent is much more than just a religious month on the calendar. We believe that Advent and the story that Advent points to has the power to shape us into a different kind of person, even a different kind of neighbor. Last week we saw three ways Advent could shape our neighboring. It makes our neighboring humble, uniquely humble, adventurous, we take risks and call. This week we're going to explore a couple more, but first let's just pray together. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, you superintended these very words of Scripture. And so would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just learn new information this morning, but that we would actually see the glory of Jesus in your written word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, so growing up, I didn't enjoy board games at all. I thought they were frankly well, boring, right? Uh, no pun intended. Uh, but in my 20s, I discovered these more complex games, kind of like maybe some of you have played Settlers of Catan. And this opened the door to an entire new genre, an entire new world even of board games, of cardboard tabletop games. And ever since those days, I've been building, as my family would attest, um, quite a collection of these games. The only problem with this 
is that most of these games sit untouched on my shelf. <laughs> Unplayed, even. Turns out what makes these things interesting and great to me is what makes them unplayable to my family and friends. <laughs> now, they take forever to explain. I mean, the instruction manuals are usually like the size of a small novella. Uh, recently, I was sharing lunch with someone who shared my same exact dilemma. I'm not alone in this. Uh, but we agreed, we agreed that their answer to this very unique problem is in how we teach the game. In other words, teaching a board game is an art. It's an art. And it requires two things. First of all, you have to sit down with this game yourself. Okay? And you have to play the entire game actually by yourself. Does that sound fun? Well, that's what you have to do if you want to teach, teach these complex games to others. Now, see, all games have a story. Even an abstract game like chess has a story. And what you need to do is you need to sit down with that story and learn and even experience that story for yourself before you invite other people into it. That's key. And the second thing that's key is that you have to tell the game's story to those you're teaching. In other words, when people sit down to play a game with you, they need to feel like they're stepping into a story that is bigger than themselves. So if a player, if your friends, if your families, even, this is a tip for, for Christmas, and if you have these hard games on your shelf, here, this is for free. <laughs> if your friends and family get a sense of who they are in this game, and importantly, where they're going, like what is the grand point of this thing? And what problem are they faced with? There is a greater chance, not a perfect chance, there is a greater chance that they will actually love it. If all you do, though, is bombard them with arbitrary, picky rules, outside of the context of the story, then I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that they will hate the game. Okay? I just have some hard-won wisdom in this area. See, here's the thing. We need story. We need story, just like we need water. We seem to be hardwired not just to enjoy stories and consume them, like books, dramas, movies, shows. We seem to be hardwired actually to even live inside the story. We need to know three essential things in order to thrive in life. We need to know, number one, who am I? Number two, what exactly has gone wrong in my world? Something's off. What is it? And number three, where am I going? These are story questions. These are story questions. And without answers to these story questions, we despair. If we don't have an answer to who am I and where am I going and what is wrong with the world that I'm living in, we despair. We don't have a story that we're living in. And that's the power of story. And this is, by the way, why every single commercial that you see these days is a story. 
Every single commercial is telling a story. Students of advertising actually will tell you about a massive shift in advertising, even in the last decade. They no longer pitch a product with data and facts. What do they do? They tell a story. And I learned sometimes the product itself isn't really even featured in the story. Pay attention next time. Maybe you've seen the Peloton commercials. Have you seen those? Peloton? That is a story. Friends, that is a story that they're telling. <laughs> this story uh, is a person living a life of deep connection, connected to themselves, connected to their body, and, and even having connection with a loved one. And they're telling you the story of their version of the good life. And what are they doing? They're inviting you in. They're inviting you in. That's the power of story. And like all powerful things, like every single powerful thing in the world, the power of story can be used for good, and it can be used also for harm. Stories, in other words, can form us and shape us into beautiful people. Stories also have the capacity and the power to deform us. So Jonathan Gottschall, he's a literary scholar at Washington Jefferson College. He recently wrote a review of a book that compares storytelling to the Trojan horse. Remember this is when uh, the Greeks stopped fighting the Trojans after decades of battle. And so they built a large wooden horse. But more importantly, what did they do? They told a story about this horse. We're done fighting. And this is an offer. The Trojans gladly accepted their horse. I think more to the point, they gladly accepted their story. And so Gottschall says, quote, The audience accepts the story because, for a human, a good story always seems like a gift. But the story is actually, he goes on, just a delivery system for the teller's agenda. A story can be a trick for sneaking a message into the fortified citadel of the human mind. That's the power of story, to deform us. If the storyteller is false and harmful. But that same power, as I said, can shape us into something good and beautiful and true if the storyteller is good and beautiful and true. Stories are that power. And this makes sense. Because God is the storyteller. Old Testament scholar Richard Pratt says, He gave us stories. And he's referring to the scripture. God is a storyteller. And we are made in his image. And so I think we are designed by God to be shaped by story. It's just who we are. Specifically and importantly, his true story. Of the world. The true story of the world that we encounter in Scripture. And a key part of that true story, friends, is Advent. In fact, if you asked me to summarize the true story of the world in one word, I would say Advent. Advent tells the true story of the world. God made the world and He made it good. Amen? We broke the world. But God decides not to give up on us or his creation. Instead, he resolves to fix it. And the way he resolves to fix it is by his advent. Advent means the arrival, 
It's from the word Adventus. It means arrival. God promises in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the story, that a hero would arrive on the scene to fix what we broke. And all throughout the Old Testament, God's people waits on this unique arrival. And then 2,000 short years ago, from our perspective, Jesus Christ comes to fulfill that exact promise. Advent. The author becomes a character in his own story to fix what is wrong and what we broke. And how we have been broken ourselves. And so Jesus, who is God in flesh, that's the mystery loved stories. And if you read the Gospels, he clearly believed in the power of story. He didn't just give people data, did he? He gave them stories. And more importantly, the Gospels show Jesus inviting people into the true story of the world, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends to God's right hand, after his earthly ministry, but before he did this, time and time again throughout his ministry, he told his followers that he would be leaving, but it would be okay, maybe even better than okay, he says, it's better that I leave. Why? Because I will send to you a helper, a paraclete, meaning Holy Spirit. And he says, but I'm coming back. And in fact, when we gather to take the Lord's Supper, we hear this promise that he tells his disciples. I am returning. And then we see in Acts chapter 1, after his resurrection, he ascends to God's right hand. And the angels come to the disciples and they say, the very way that you saw him leave, he will be returning. And so what is going on in Acts chapter 1? A story, the true story of the world is being told. But more importantly, the true story of the world is being presented to the disciples and to you. And you are being asked to take part in it. To find your place in it. Yes, you and me, we live within the advents of Jesus. His first arrival and his second promised arrival. That is the story that we find ourselves in. Who am I? What is wrong with the world? And where am I going? And Advent answers those questions. Profoundly, deeply, and truly. And like all stories, if the story is a safe story, if it is a true story, it should shape you into truth and into beauty. It shapes your outlook in life. It shapes your priorities in life. It could shape your internal life. And yes, it shapes how you love your neighbor. It must. So last week, we looked at three ways that Advent shapes our neighbor love. Today, I just want to look at a couple. I want to say this. If we live in this story of Advent, we will be formed and shaped. And our neighboring will be at least two things. What I would call empathic and expectant. I want to look at both. So first, if we live in the story of Advent, our neighboring will be empathic, empathy. Advent enables and expands our capacity for real empathy and connection with our hurting neighbor. Let me say that again. Advent, when we live in the story of Advent, the true story of Advent, we will be enabled and expanded in our capacity for real empathy and connection with our neighbor who is hurting. 
To explore this, I want to look at the first advent and the second advent. To explore the first advent, I want to read this passage, which might be familiar to you all, from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting in verse 32. You can turn there or listen along, and more importantly, find yourself in this story this morning with your redemptive imagination. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother, speaking of Lazarus, would not have died. If you would have been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, stand there for him with me. He, Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus has three best friends. See how he loved them. So Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were a trio, a brother-sister trio. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus enters the scene. And when he sees their weeping, their anguish, look again at what the Lord of the universe does. It says in the text, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. These are not acts. These are not alligator tears. He was greatly troubled and he was deeply moved at the core in his spirit. He was angry at death. He was angry at it all. He was disturbed at it all. What he saw and what he walked into disturbed him. And so Jesus weeps. That's the first advent. That's the first advent. I want us to think about that. When Jesus arrives into the story that he is the author of, he grieves and he weeps at what he sees in the brokenness. Now I want us to look at the second heaven. This is Revelation 21, verse 4. When we're given a glimpse of his second arrival, where it says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we have two scenes with Jesus, we have two Advent scriptures, and we have two episodes of weeping. And I think both are so important. If we live in the story of Advent, we must hold on to both of these stories of weeping. One assures us of the presence of Jesus in our pain. And the other assures us of the promise of Jesus about that very same pain. See, the advent of Jesus' arrival may not answer all of our questions about suffering and about death. But his two arrivals give us two unique, I think, gifts or resources that can frame our tears. Do you want to frame your tears with the advent of Jesus? You can. And you do it first with the presence of Jesus. He is not embarrassed or cool about your weeping. 
That's what the first advent tells us. Jesus weeps. If you live in this story, and Jesus is your king, you can know that he, the king of the universe, the author of the story, knows what suffering feels like, knows from the cross what injustice, what profound injustice feels like on his body. And you have his unique presence in your pain. Yet the second advent comes in and tells us that our pain does not have the final say. And friends, we have to, have to hold on to both. Jesus wants us to know that the end of his story, which is, of course, the end of our story, involves the wiping of tears, which I love because what it does is it acknowledges the pain. In the second advent of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just ignore the veil of tears that this life can be. There's a wiping of tears. Have you ever wiped tears from somebody? That is an intimate thing. That is a very intimate thing. And it acknowledges hurt. It acknowledges deep pain. And yet Jesus wants us to know that this deep pain and this deep weeping does not have the funds. That his second advent somehow will make things okay. Again, Advent may not answer all of our questions about suffering. But when we live in its story, we have precious access to two bedrock truths. His presence and his promise. And valuable resources that can help us in our pain. And this should change, I think, how we love others in their pain as well. The first Advent means, I think, that we can notice others hurting. Without ignoring I mean, after all, if Jesus does that with us, and we are blessed to be a blessing, then it follows that we now can notice other, others' pains. Like, Jesus notices the weeping of those around Lazarus in the first advent. He, he sees it. Are your eyes open to it? Right now. Do you, do you, are you aware? Are you looking? I think if you live in the story of Advent, you are looking. And you can notice it without ignoring it. And it means that we can therefore sit with others in their pain without offering cheap shortcuts. That's what the first advent enables us to do. And the second advent, when we need that in, means that we can also offer real hope. And not cheap hope. When a child's learning math, uh, sometimes they just go to the teacher and they say, Will you do this problem for me? A bad teacher will do the problem for them. A good teacher uh, will tell them, I, I can't do that for you. <laughs> you need to sit with this. And I promise to sit with you as well in this. Well, that's just how we are tempted, I think, to resolve suffering. Just tell me the answer. God, just tell me the answer right now. Just resolve this for me immediately. And listen, there are books and there are people who are happy to resolve it for you. But they all amount to the same thing. It's not the second advent of Jesus. Shortcuts. Only advent offers the truth about suffering and pain. It acknowledges the death and it deals with the death. Everything else is a shortcut. Advent says the pain and suffering of God is not aloof 
Jesus enters our painful mess. That's the first advent. But it also says the pain doesn't win in the end. The tears do not have a final say. They will be wiped away. I know this, I know this leaves a lot unexplained. But I just have to say, everything else besides Advent is a shortcut. And when we accept this and when we live in this, I believe it helps us neighbor others well, especially in their grief. So Advent says this, number one, Jesus has entered our story of self-inflicted, others-inflicted, evil-inflicted suffering in the first Advent without losing himself or his mission. Because this is our story, we can now be connected enough to our neighbor to know their pain and even enter into it without losing ourselves. And sit with them. Because listen, I believe that only Jesus can finally answer our pain. That means is that when we are sitting next to our neighbors, it will put the brakes on trite answers and it will uncork compassion. See, often our trite answers to pain are more about relieving ourselves than it is loving our neighbor. It's about our insecurities around unexplainable suffering. But Advent enables us to sit in grief. And this enables us to sit with others in their grief as well. It's been said by many, so, it's been said by so many people and, and attributed to so many people, I don't actually know who said this first. But it's a good saying. Everybody you meet is in a battle that you don't know about. Advent enables us to, enables us to know enough or to care enough to know about that battle. And when we do, we can love them well. Advent is a unique resource in that way. Which really takes us to our second point. It's an important point. Because our neighboring, if we live in the story of Advent, is not just empathic, but it is also expectant. It's expectant. Advent should shape us into expectant neighbors. Because Advent says that we're in a story that's going somewhere. Life is linear in a way. It's moving towards a finale. And that finale is the revealing of Jesus when all things are made new, including the world and including our bodies. Listen to how Paul puts this story-oriented mindset in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. I want to say that phrase again. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul the Apostle is saying to the Thessalonians, I know you guys are wrapped in grief right now because of the deaths that are happening in your midst. And it's my apostolic duty, Paul is saying, to inform you of something very, 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 very important. And that is, when you grieve, not don't grieve. Like the apostolic deposit here is not don't grieve. What are you doing? Jesus is here. Don't grieve. Put that away. Put that away. No, no, no. The apostolic deposit here is when you grieve. We do not grieve as those who do not have hope. What Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians is he's saying that we are living in a story and that ought to change how we grieve and how we grieve with others.
He says in verse 14, for since, this is the why, this is the, the, the sort of foundation for why he can say we grieve, but not, with the, not like those who don't have hope. Why? Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. This reality makes us expectant neighbors. It means, first of all, that we're expectant in our own life. It makes us hopeful, expectant people. We look to that future day. We expect it. We often say, I hope, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a trust of God's promise. And so Advent shapes us into hopeful, expectant people. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking, but a secure, future-oriented anchoring or trust that God will indeed do what He said that He would do. So we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. It also means we're expected in our own stories, but it also means we're expected in our neighbor's stories too. Advent story means that we have an opportunity and even an obligation to offer true hope to our neighbor in distress. In other words, Advent should shape us into the best kind of evangelists. Let's redeem that word, okay? Evangelist. Because evangelist comes from the root evangel, which comes from the word we talked about last Sunday, euangelion. Euangelion means good news. Good news. And so evangelism at its best is when those who have received his good news pass it on and share it with others. We share the hope that is within us. The living hope, as Peter would put it. What else can we do? What else can we do, especially when we are hurting? If you're like me, uh, whenever you shop on Amazon for something, you spend a lot of time in the review section. Anybody else? Anybody? I just It's like the greatest thing ever and the worst thing ever. The review section of Amazon. See, as I'm reading these things, I'm always looking out for different types of reviewers. I, I found like three different kinds. Let me just check this against your own experience. There's the professional reviewer who's like literally getting these things for free and is reviewing them as like their job. You know? Those people. And then there's what I would call the hobbyist reviewer. These are people who, maybe you're out there, you love writing reviews. It's just something you love to do. Anybody? I, I would love to read your reviews if that's true. And I'll look out for them. Uh, but then there's this third kind of reviewer, and I love these reviews, and I actually look for these reviews. They're this. The once in a lifetime, I never make reviews, but for this I am kind of person. <laughs> and that could be because it's terrible, or because it's amazing, and I always look for both. Whenever I see a review that says, listen, I don't even know how to do this. I've never done this before. But this thing has changed my life. And let me tell you how. And they could be totally lying. I don't care. <laughs> but for me, that is a, a review that gets my attention. Well, that's the Advent Christian. It has to be. Because what that is, is it's reluctant evangelists who are swept into a story that's bigger than them, who says, look, I never do this, but this is my hope. 
I, I'm not a proselytizer. I don't, I don't like making you feel awkward. I don't like sort of, I want you, I, I respect you. And I respect your life and your story. But I just have to tell you about the hope that I have. There's nothing else. I really believe everything else in the world is a shortcut when it comes to this veil of tears of life. And Jesus has offered me true hope, and I just have to tell you about it. How could I not? That is the, I never do this, but I'm going to do this reviewer on Amazon. And it's how Advent ought to shape us in our neighboring as well. Advent makes us expect that God is on the move with those that we live next to. And we need to ask this question about our neighbors. Why has God placed these folks next to me? Have we ever asked that question? Because that's a question in such an age that we live in that we don't often ask. When we hear the word love your neighbor, as the book we're reading points out, we often think of this sort of nebulous neighbor. But not the flesh and blood that lives 200 yards from us. Or maybe even 200 feet from us. Or maybe even 20 feet from us. Sharing an apartment wall. We don't think about them. But let's ask the question and begin asking why has God put them next door to me? And am I in a unique place to even just sh- share the hope that I have in Jesus? Because here's the thing about Advent. His first Advent is good news. It's patience from God, according to Peter. It's patience. God is offering peace to sinners through Jesus. But the hard facts about our story is that the second advent is not good news for anyone who is not hoping in Jesus. I don't know how we can read our story any differently. And so this means that when we neighbor, we have an appropriate sense of urgency in our neighborhood. We don't bait and switch. We don't manipulate, we don't force, we don't mock, we don't gossip. We honor people and their stories. But we certainly also share the good news of Jesus with others if we believe it's good. And you are perfectly shaped, and I am perfectly shaped to do that. For my unique neighbors, and so are you. Advent is a story that we're living it's a story that we're living in. It's the truest story of the world. And when we live in it, we will receive the gifts from Jesus. We who were enemies of God have become friends with him. We have fellowship, as John puts it in the scriptures we heard uh, that Amanda read for us. We don't just have, as it's been said, salvation from condemnation, though that is true in Jesus in the first advent. What John says in 1 John 1-4 through is that we actually have fellowship with God, too. So we were enemies, we were natural-born enemies, and now we have this fellowship. And we receive this, and when we receive this, we have, we have Jesus sitting with us in our tears, giving us a hope for our tears, and giving us a, a, an expectant posture towards their foreign neighbors. This is a story we live in, and it is going to shape us every day we live in. Lately, I've been relearning the guitar because I kind of learned it as a kid but didn't really learn it. Do you know what I'm saying? And so like I learned basically bad habits. <laughs> and so what I tried to do is I tried to just go back to ground zero and pretend like I've never played the guitar before, which is impossible, but it's a fun it's a fun little trick. 
And I'm just thinking, okay, what if I'm just starting fresh? And so I bought a method book that teaches me kind of proper technique, that teaches me proper music theory, and it's even teaching me how to read notes, which I never learned before. And I'm loving it. And it's been so great. So now I can pick up sheet music, and it can't be complicated, and it can only be in a key of C, okay? But I can pick up sheet music, and I can play it. Reading music, in other words, is very different than reading a book because reading music requires that you play. And this is how I want us to see the story of Advent this year. We are reading the story. We are immersing ourselves in the story. But like sheet music, it is meant to be played. It is meant to be embodied. And when we do this, we become a certain kind of neighbor, as we talked about this morning. Empathic. Expect. Lord, would you work this out in our lives in the ways that only you can, Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that Advent is a uniquely challenging season. For all of us sitting here, and it follows all of those we live next to. It doesn't help even, Lord, that we ratchet up as a society the jolliness. And even the family gatherings, which can be complicated. And so we're, we feel stuck with in a society that demands jolliness right now. But we carry grief and struggle. And so do our neighbors. And so Lord, would you with your advent and by your advent free us to notice others and to love them more. And to even just sit with you, Jesus, and your peace. And your Jesus people. And would that shape us into folks who can do this with us. And then, Lord, make us expectant. Make us hopeful. Give us a sure hope against all odds and against all effects. Help us to see that everything else is a shortcut. We need Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.